Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Seven readers from UC Riverside's MFA program, please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Um, yes, welcome, you guys. Um, my name is Alicia Mosley, and I'm a, a student in the MFA program in fiction, and I just want to thank you again for coming out. Um, our first reader is Allison Bennis White. Allison Bennis-White is the author of Please Bury Me in This, winner of the 2018 Rilke Prize, and Small Porcelain Head, selected by Claudia Rankine for the Levi's Prize in Poetry. Her first book, Self-Portrait with Crayon, received the Cleveland State University Poetry Center Book Prize. Her work has appeared in the American Poetry Review, Plowshares 2017, Pushcart Prize, Best of Small Presses, and elsewhere. She teaches at the University of California. California Riverside. Um, and a fun fact about her is that she won a hula hoop endurance contest at Camp Kaleidoscope when she was 10 years old. Welcome, Allison Bennis-White. very much. I'm so excited that I got to share that fun fact with you all. It really is probably one of the best moments of my life. Okay, so I'm going, oh, happy Mother's Day, by the way, to those of you for whom this is a happy day, and uh, for those of you for whom this is a difficult day, I feel you, and uh, congratulations, it's almost over. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read uh, from uh, Please Bury Me in This, which is my most recent book. And um, this book, I wrote some things about it to tell you. Okay, so um, it's a book that meditates on bereavement and language, and it's, um, it's written in the wake of several losses in my life, the, chiefly the loss of my father and then the loss of several women um, to suicide in a very short period of time. And um, I was, I was interviewed recently, and this gentleman asked me, is writing about, or in response to these losses, um, was that like reliving it? And, um, and that made me think of something my friend Jessica said when um, our friend Nicole died, um, and she was the first to pass, and she said, when, when Nicole died, it was as if a door to a room opened that I didn't know existed. And, um, and I was thinking, yeah, that these these poems were not an act of reliving, but they were absolutely written in that room. Um, the poems are, um, I think I said this already, it's a book-length series. They don't have titles because they're all, they all exist under the umbrella of Please Bury Me in This, the book title. And they're epistolary, they're a series of letters. Um, and I always feel like this is a book that in that respect is dreaming of a reader. Um, a reader that is maybe as bewildered and lost as the writer is in the wake of her losses. So I'm just going to read from the first section, um, and I'll read them in a row. And I'll also read the um, dedication and the epigraph. <clears throat> so this is for the four women I knew who took their lives within a year, and also for my father. And this is the epigraph, which is taken from the New York Times in 2014. 
Mental illness is not a communicable disease, but there is a strong body of evidence that suicide is still contagious. Underneath each seat was a small box we were asked to open. In the living room once, white balloons twisted into the ghosts of animals. How the snow globe, when shaken, relives the same shatter. The sick mind is beautiful and cannot sleep. Like a string of glass beads wrapped several times around my neck, when I close my eyes, I can only imagine blindness as darkness, death as not thinking. I'm writing you this letter. I am trying to understand sentences as paintings of windows in the room where I'm alive. Looking up in the dark, I thought, tell me something you've never told anyone. I tried in the closet, but the rope broke. Maybe the relief of conversation, of something almost happening. The way in the morning, lying on the floor, the light through the blinds cuts my face. Less than hope, wishing. How sugar became snow, poured over wet glue on a cardboard roof. I remember the paper house hung from a cage hook in my room, swaying. Not fonder, not fonder. The heart grows stranger. I am not any closer to saying what I mean. Love has made itself so quiet, a few red fish moving in slow circles. I want to say like blood, like forgiveness, this obedience looking at the ground on my knees. I mean to cease to feel, to cancel, to give up all claim to. At some point, I rested my hands over my eyes and mouthed, this is my face housed underwater. This is a love letter, every word but mouthed erased. Dear Kitty, dear God, dear Lucifer, I cut my hair off this morning, placed the long blonde braid in an envelope. There is only one arc, suffering, transformation. Dear Linda, Sexton wrote to her daughter on a flight to St. Louis, I love you. In other words, these words, their spectacular lack. I mean, my head is a napkin folded into a swan. I mean, these are death letters, an obsession with something colorless, private. You have been entirely patient with me and incredibly good. I want to say that. And then nothing but my hands unfolding the swan and smoothing it over my lap. Now my neighbor, through the wall playing piano, I imagine, with her eyes closed. When she stops playing, she disappears. I am still waiting for the right words to explain myself to you. 
When there was nothing left to smoke, I drew on my lips with a pen until they were black. Or is this what it means to be empty, to make no sound? I pressed my mouth to the wall until I'd made a small gray ring. Or maybe emptiness is a form of listening. Maybe I'm just listening. Maybe the pain is see-through, clicking, as in my father pulling me up by the wrists, saying, this is the problem with being alive. And years later, deliriously, when he was dying, do you have the blood flower? I was taught to chant, he loves me, he loves me not, as I tore off each petal in my room. You are not alone in your feeling of aloneness. Yes, I have the blood flower. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Allison. That was beautiful. Um, up next, we have Steve Erickson. Uh, Steve Erickson is the author of 10 novels, including the recent Shadow Bond, and is a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Lannan Award, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature. And when asked for a fun fact, he responded, there are no facts about me that aren't fun. So please welcome Steve Erickson. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for coming. I want to thank the students for inviting me to be part of this. Uh, thank you to uh, Skylight for hosting this. I'm going to read a little bit from um, my most recent novel. I've abridged uh, the opening pages a little bit and then I've kind of tacked on a, a section from later on in the book. It feels like the one bit of context I should give you is that I um, finished the first draft of this the same month that Donald Trump was nominated for president. Things don't just disappear into thin, but she hangs up on him before he finishes. What the, he says, staring at his cell phone in dismay and trying to remember if she ever hung up on it before. As he finishes filling the tank of his truck and replaces the pump's nozzle, Aaron ponders how this became the kind of argument where his wife hangs up on him. Starting the ignition, turning down the oldie station on the radio, he sits a minute irritably checking the rearview mirror. Another truck waits for him to pull away from the pump. Aaron remembers he meant to get a donut and Red Bull from the gas station's convenience market, some concentrated discharge of sugar and caffeine to take him the rest of the way to Rapid City. He looks at his cell to see if she's texted. Fuck if I'm apologizing, he says out loud to nobody. Without his donut and Red Bull, he glides back out onto Interstate 90 in his red truck with its gold racing stripes and the bumper sticker that reads, Save America from Itself. When he first put on the sticker, he thought he knew what it meant, but the more he's thought about it since, the less sure he is. Aaron considers the one time he fell asleep at the wheel. It couldn't have been longer than a couple of seconds, but enough to start veering off the road until another, truck, another truck's horn blared him into consciousness. His heart didn't stop pounding until he finished the route. If you want to wake yourself up good for the rest of a drive, 
try falling asleep at the wheel for a moment. On the radio, a man and woman sing to each other, having their own argument, maybe. She hung up on me, Aaron thinks. I'm not apologizing. Fuck that. But he's had fights with Scylla Ann before and knows as his indignation subsides that if she hasn't texted by the other side of the bridge at Chamberlain crossing the Missouri River, he'll wind up calling. The man and woman singing to each other on, on the radio aren't exactly arguing. It's kind of a cowboy song, but not exactly half a century old. Trippy with spy movie horn riffs, although Aaron not caring about music doesn't break it down like that. Instead, he catches out of the corner of his ear the story that the cowboy sings in the deepest voice anyone's heard of the woman seducing him so she can steal his silver spurs while he sleeps. If I'm honest, Aaron admits to himself ruefully, I know it's not true that things don't just disappear into thin air. If I'm honest and I've learned anything in this life, it's that things disappear into thin air all the time. The woman on the radio singing of summer wine reminds Aaron that these are the last days of summer, nine days before the fall. The music is only something in the background to keep him awake. A song finishes, he says out loud, ask me what I just heard, I have no idea. In his early 40s, Aaron drives Interstate 90 at least three times a week, counting both to and from, sometimes four or five if he can hustle up the commerce. Sometimes when the traffic of other trucks is at a maximum, he cuts down to Highway 44, running through the plains beyond Buffalo Gap. From the cabin of his truck, now he aims himself at anything westward that he can see a hundred miles away, at the swath of blue crushing a horizon invaded by the slightest vapor of white, not so much clouds since there hasn't been a cloud in the sky, let alone rain in forever. Highway 44 is draped with the flags of disunion that grow in number the farther west Aaron gets. Later, he'll wonder how it is that on this morning of the argument about his wallet disappearing into thin air, he could have missed there on the flat plain before him the two skyscrapers, each a quarter mile high, the breath of Aaron's country exhaled from the nostrils of Aaron's century. Soon, the change in the landscape announces itself as always. Dashed lava and the blasted detritus of dying asteroids, slashes of geologic red and gold, rendering his truck a chameleon. A song finishes, I have no idea what I just heard, but he still remembers what was playing on the radio the time he fell asleep behind the wheel, a mashup of spirituals and national folk tunes sung by the most famous singer, whoever lived. Old times there are not forgotten, look away, and his truth is marching on, and all my trials will soon be over. In the two seconds when Aaron fell asleep, he had a dream that lasted hours in which the song appeared as a black tunnel on the highway before him. By mid-afternoon, the 
tail end of the seven-hour drive to Rapid City from Sioux Falls. Aaron has not neither called his wife nor, nor heard from her. He's buzzy and bleary at the same time in the crossfire of fatigue and two Starbucks espressos self-administered in Chamberlain. But when he slams on the brakes of the truck without bothering to check in the rearview mirror whether anyone is behind him, he knows he's not in the tunnel of any song. He's not dreaming the thing that suddenly has appeared before him and can no longer be missed as he rounds the corner and emerges from a pass into the Dakota Badlands with his rocks shaped like interstellar mushrooms and ridges like the spine of mutated iguana. He doesn't bother pulling his truck over to the side of the highway. Stopping in the middle, he gawks for a full minute, opening and closing his eyes and then opening them again. His truck abandoned mid-highway, Aaron strides to the roadside as though the few extra feet will somehow make what he sees comprehensible. A moment later, he returns to the truck's cabin. He pulls his cell from his pocket. Hey, he says when she answers. Hey, he hears her back, hesitant and quiet. Look, I'm sorry. And there's a pause, and when he doesn't reciprocate, she says, okay then, annoyed. Then another pause. Aaron? Now when he doesn't answer, she's worried by his silence. He must be close to Rapid City by now. The afternoon sun slides down the sun. The afternoon sun slides down the sky like a window shade. Aaron studies the little icons on his cell. How do you take a picture with this thing, he asks. These things take pictures, don't they? You sound like your mother, she sighs. Tap the symbol of the camera. How do I send it to you, he asks. Send it to me later, she starts to answer. And then he says, more emphatically than he's ever said anything to her, now, you have to see this and tell me I haven't lost my mind. But he knows he hasn't lost his mind. He's not in any dream. He's not in any tunnel. Now another truck approaching in the distance from the other direction. This one's front, front bumper, festooned with the flag of disunion, stops in the middle of the highway too, like Aaron's. Like Aaron, the other driver gets out of the other truck to walk to the roadside, rubbing his eyes as if in a cartoon. Yet another vehicle nears, and as Aaron turns to gaze over his shoulder, up and down the highway, other cars have begun to stop, passengers emerging, everyone's stupefaction surfacing in thought balloons. Yeah, he calls to everyone in and out of earshot, spinning there in the middle of the highway. Oh yeah, explain that, gesturing at the two towers. Do they just appear out of the thin air into which things don't just disappear. It's mid-afternoon, hundreds of cars and trucks already having passed this way since daybreak. Aaron has driven this highway many times, as recently as the previous weekend, spotting nothing but the forbidding Badlands horizon, utterly undisturbed by human endeavor. But before his eyes now, now twin towers rise from the volcanic gorge. They aren't just the tallest things that Aaron has seen, since he knows that wouldn't be saying much. They're the tallest things most people have seen, with their 220 floors between them, each of identical height, except one is topped by a colossal aerial antenna, jutting another 400 feet. 
the dual monoliths rocket to the heavens even as they're ominously earthbound. Aaron lifts the cell back to his ear. Scylla, he says, as calmly as he can imagine. Anyone who's looked at a television or the internet or a history book the previous score of years recognizes the buildings instantly. On the other end of the phone, staring at the photo he's sent her, she finally says, I don't get it. Some slight hysteria rises in his voice. What do you mean you don't get it? Let's not fight about this too, he thinks. You don't see it? Them? I do see it. Them. But where are you? Highway 44 in the Badlands, he says. Same 44, same Badlands I drive almost every damn day. She says, maybe they're a monument of some kind. Someone's been building a monument. Aaron practically shouts in disbelief. Okay, he snaps, they're a monument. Realizing this time he's about to hang up on her until she pleads, don't go. And then Aaron can hear she's scared and knows he's scared. He peers around at the rapidly swelling sea of human disbelief, the highway traffic jam devolving to a parking lot. They look just like in the pictures, she says, but it can't be them. I was 17 when they came down. It was a Tuesday, she remembers. I mean, where did they come from? What are they doing in South Dakota? What are they doing anywhere, Aaron answers. 20 years to the day after their appearance in the Dakota Badlands, the Twin Towers will reappear in flashes of sightings confirmed by thousands, from Delano to Dallas, from Memphis to Montgomery. Occasionally, the towers are separated by, separated by an expanse, such as the 10 miles that divide them in Selma. People lay plans for greeting the next tower's manifestation in yet another 20 years, though precisely what plan remains unclear. Will a massive net be dropped from the sky to hold the towers in place? Will the skyscrapers be tasered into acquiescence with an immense surge of electricity? In the meantime, America, the America that is to say that never looked like anything but what it ever was, a dream, comes to bear less resemblance to itself until it eludes all recognition. Regions secede from the nation, states from regions, cities from states. By mid-century, the recently formed Oklahoma Christian conglomerate applies to the World Trade Organization for a patent on quote-unquote America. A rage of countersuits is filed. Attempting without satisfaction to assess the petitions by the typical standards of singularity, functionality, precedent, the organization's council ultimately gathers representatives for the various claimants in a locked conference room where each has posed a question with the understanding that the patent for America legitimately belongs to whichever answers correctly who recorded West End Blues in June 1928. The country itself becomes crisscrossed by so-called shadow highways that remain the only geography recognized as federal lands still subject to national sovereignty. 
15,000 miles of such thoroughfares are marked by countless arched bridges constructed by squatters desperate to live on or over whatever part of the landscape can still be called America. Sometimes these cults build overnight cities on the highways themselves, risking collision and vehicular slaughter for the privilege of assuming the mystical self-identification American. Although the cultists are viewed by most with suspicion, nonetheless, other continental occupants gather at the sides of the highways to listen to the music that comes from these makeshift cities. In the dark of night, in any spot of the late country that blasts out all its horizons, the arches of America can be heard in either direction as a series of chiming rings stretching as far as the ear can listen. Thank you, Steve Erickson. Um, so up next we have Nora Woolley. She's a first year in playwriting. Um, she is going to read, uh, the person that was going to read got sick, so she's going to have her husband read for her, um, So, which is great. And a fun fact is she has never broken a bone. Oh, sorry, sorry. Reading wrong. <laughs> okay, we'll see. It's also a fun fact for her. Um, a fun fact for Nora is on stage, Nora has died via overdose, car accident, degenerative disease, plane crash, and most painfully, broken heart. Welcome, Nora. Hi, thank you. Um, I also wanted to mention that Cass is going to read stage directions for me, which is truly generous of her. Thank you. This play is called Gloria and Lisa. It's a multi-character play for one actress. And I would say it's also a depiction of motherhood appropriate for today. A fictionalized version of attorney Gloria Allred, also named Gloria, age 68, sits alone in a green room. It is 2017. She is dressed in a red Armani pantsuit. There is a makeup mirror in front of her along with several bouquets of flowers and cards. She looks in the mirror for some time, then slowly and with a sense of ritual, removes a long line of cosmetics and hair products from her briefcase while the following peppy, gossipy news broadcast plays from an unseen television. Catchy E! News lead in song. A young newscaster's voice is heard as a voiceover. The cold snap in Hollywood this week means it's beginning to feel a lot more like Christmas. But you'll have to forgive many in the entertainment industry for keeping their holiday cheer at bay, as today it was revealed that Lisa Boom Beep Sound is serving as counsel to film producer Harvey Weinstein Bleep Sound, even amidst mounting claims of sexual misconduct. This is a, a surprising move for a self-proclaimed civil rights attorney and daughter of iconic feminist attorney, Gloria Allred Bleep who, Sound, who herself is currently representing several women in class action lawsuits against Mr. Harvey Bleep Sound. Whoa, I guess this year Santa won't have a hard time determining who's been naughty and who's been nice in this family. Voice of producer, 30s, is heard over the green room speakers. 
Uh, Miss? Gloria bleep sound. We have Connie here if you'd like some assistance getting camera ready. Gloria applies lipstick. I do my own makeup. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, yes, of course. Well, Connie is here if you need her. It's oddly chilly out there. As you know, the camera does all kinds of strange, thing, strange things in the cold. Please tell Connie that while I appreciate her artistry, I have perfected my own application skills over nearly 70 years of weathering extreme elements and can say with confidence that I know what it takes to be camera ready, no matter the climb. Sure, of course. I have no doubt about that. It's just as a producer, I feel compelled to tell you that there are far more, far more press out there than I was expecting. And? And, well, I think it's this particular moment has emerged as uh, particularly... Controversial? Uh, yes, controversial. Are you familiar with the Nutcracker Ballet? Uh, I'm sorry? I'm assuming you are not Jewish, correct? Cor correct. I'm uh, not really, really... Two women, Anna Pavlova and Alicia Markova after her, made the Nutcracker what it is today. Both danced as sugar plum fairies and both were Jewish, although no one knew that. They hid it. Markova was the first free agent ballerina in many ways, the first to wear a leotard without a tutu, and the first Jewish prima ballerina assoluta. Do you know what that means? I would guess absolute... Absolute best. The highest rank of ballerina in the world. It is a term reserved for the most exceptional dancers of a generation. I see. Controversial. There should be nothing controversial about two women doing their jobs. I meant controversial. Controversy makes a good story. I think it is me whom you find to be controversial. No, I... Young man, I, if I am controversial, it is because the status of women is controversial. A little while later, Gloria enters and stands at a podium. It is her dais. An epic number of TV station microphones are positioned toward her. A warm thank you on this blustery Christmas afternoon to all of the media present. Thank you for joining me at this important press conference. Gesturing to reporters. Hi, Eleanor. Hello, Frank. Yes. Hi, Patricia. Amidst the coverage today surrounding my daughter, Lisa Bloom beep sound, I implore you to remember the larger issue at stake here. Sexual predation is alive and well in the entertainment industry, and its most voracious operative has yet to be held accountable in a court of law. Harvey bleep sound. Has committed innumerable heinous acts at the expense of my clients. I am very proud to represent very long list of bleeped out names as victims of his sexual misconduct in their brave journey to seek the justice they so clearly deserve. Harvey bleep sound. Is a criminal who belongs in jail. Lights down on Gloria. Lights up on a fictionalized version of Gloria's daughter, Lisa Bloom, also called Lisa, late 40s. This is the same actress playing Gloria with a small change in appearance. Lisa is seated at a generic conference table amidst many microphones at her own press conference. Good afternoon. I sit here for the first time in my life speaking about myself to the press instead of fighting for the rights of a client. I am a woman a mother, a successful attorney. The work that enabled these words to exist in one sentence began many years ago when my mother, at age 23, graduated from law school, unmarried, with a child, 3,000 miles from home without the support of her own mother. When a woman's professional life is publicized, it is too often through a lens of selfishness and immorality. I am a feminist. I am the child of a feminist. 
My work as an attorney is to support women and all people during their individual journeys toward achieving their potential, free from discrimination or harassment of any kind. Lights down on Lisa, lights up on Gloria. Harvey Bleep Sound. Is a tyrant we cannot afford to forget about, even for one single moment, and I implore you to keep this in mind as the facts pertaining to my daughter's connection to Harvey Bleep Sound continue to surface, and whether her agreement to act as his counsel is proven to predate her knowledge of his acts of sexual predation. Lights down on Gloria, lights up on Lisa. Harvey Bleep Sound. Brought me on as an advisor. In the work that I do, I am constantly analyzing, thinking, what are the allegations here? My job with him was about words, to educate him about sexual harassment laws, about the power imbalance, and about what is appropriate and not appropriate in the workplace, including his tone. He is known for having a belligerent, angry tone. Lights down on Lisa, lights up on Gloria. Had I been asked, by Harvey Bleep Sound to represent him, I would have declined because I do not represent individuals accused of sexual harassment. I only represent those who allege they are victims of sexual harassment. While I do not represent Harvey Bleep Sound, I would consider representing anyone who accused Harvey Bleep Sound of sexual harassment, even if it meant that my daughter was the opposing counsel. Lisa Bleep Sound is an excellent attorney, one who has been practicing at a high level for many years, after all, she learned from the best, Lisa Bleep Sound. would be a worthy adversary. Lights down on Gloria, lights up on Lisa. I am a civil rights attorney. The protection of women and people of color is my priority, and that is why I began working for the Harvey Bleep Sound company, and why I wrote a book about the miscarriage of justice in the Trayvon Martin Bleep Sound case. It is a real passion project for me. I imagine myself as the prosecutor in this case, asking the many questions that could have proven the many ways it was unreasonable for a suburban vigilante to have feared for his life when an unarmed teenager walked by. And when I was approached by the Harvey Bleep Sound company and Jay-Z Bleep Sound to do a mini-series about it, yeah, I was thrilled. It's not a conflict legally for a lawyer to have a business deal with a client. It would be if I were a judge in the case. So you understand ethnically it's not an issue. But what people have been telling me is, Lisa Bleepson, were you so excited about this miniseries project that it clouded your judgment? And I say, lights down on Lisa, lights up on Gloria. I say, I created the court of public opinion and today it puts us both on trial. Questions? A general cacophony of questions and camera shutters. A payphone appears, DR. It rings sporadically while the press conference sounds slash questions escalate in volume. It is confusing. Gloria struggles to hear the questions but attempts to respond to them anyway. Finally, she goes on to answer the ring. Hello? Mother? Mother? How can it... Is this some kind of joke? Is it really you? Can, can you speak up, Mother? Mother? She turns to the press. Shh, shh, please be. Back to the phone. What? Yes, I know. I, I know it's my fault, Mother. Yes, Lisa is in trouble, but it's not a regret, Mother. It's a... Can you... Can you let me finish, Mother? Addressing the press. Shut it. Please shut it. Back to the phone. It's a quantifiable shortcoming. It's a shortcoming on my part as a representative of the second wave of feminism. C can you hear me, Mother? Addressing the press. Shut up. Please shut up. 
It is my mother on the phone, and she is long dead. It worked. Total silence. He returns to the phone. Listen, mother, please. I am in the middle of a press conference, mother. It is a big deal. I have to go. I'm, I am grateful, mother. I am. She removes a cigarette from her pocket and lights it. No, mother. It was a different time. The times were changing, mother. No, I'm not a hippie. She begins unbuttoning her suit jacket. I'm a... Well... Now, you didn't have the same choices now, did you, Mother? Career and family, yes, Mother, both. Well, why can't I have both? I don't agree with that, Mother. It's because I had no model for it, Mother. No, I'm not blaming. Just please, please listen. She takes a big drag of the cigarette. What I needed from the day she was born was for my career to take off because it meant proving to the world. She removes her suit jacket to reveal a 1980s looking sleeveless blouse. It meant proving. She coughs from the cigarette. Yes, I am wearing lipstick. Please, listen. How do I help our... Lisa bleeps sound. Please, please, tell me how to help my sugar plum mother. Hello? The line is dead. Gloria hangs up the phone. The 1980s hit Gloria, covered by Laura Brangenkamp, plays. <laughs> she stamps out her cigarette, looks into the mirrored payphone surface, and reapplies her lipstick. It is now 1988. Gloria looks and feels younger. She walks back to her dais and takes hold of one of the microphones while pushing the others out of sight. We are at a graduation commencement ceremony. We hear the sound of a huge crowd cheering and whistling as a song reaches its crescendo and then dies down. Thank you for your kind introduction, Dr. Sparks, and to the Loyola Marymount University class, Law School class of 1988, I salute you. More cheers and whistles. It is an honor to speak today on the occasion of such a celebratory event. May it be the first of many hard-won successes in your long careers as attorneys at law. As you well know, LMU is my alma mater, and today I am proud to say it is now my daughter's alma mater as well. She is graduating summa cum laude and is the sole recipient of the Dean's Scholar Prize. I hate to embarrass you, but you didn't think I could let an opportunity pass by to talk about you in public, did you? You know, the hardest thing about law is there's no justice in it. What matters to you? What is the change you want to create? How much money do you want to earn? What kind of life do you envision for yourself? Law is a practice of strategy. And to be successful, you have to figure out what gets sacrificed. And I'm not talking about ethics, no. I'm talking about, the thing is, she looks in the direction of the payphone, wondering if she should continue. Well, the fact is, the sooner an attorney learns the truth about the injustice of law, the sooner she can spin it to her advantage. There's not a lot of time for relationships, for, well, kids. I am speaking to you, young female attorneys. As a working mother, you must, you must reinvent time and space. The sound of a large crowd booing. Gloria takes it in and slowly sits down on a high stool placed behind her dais, adjusting the mic accordingly. A judge's gavel sound is along with a male voice over a judge saying, settle down, ladies and gentlemen, settle down. It is closer to the present day. We are now in a courtroom and Gloria is on trial, defending herself, directly addressing the audience as jury. 
she raises her right hand. I, Gloria Bloopsound, solemnly swear to tell the truth. She removes the red contemporary suit coat from behind the dais and puts it on. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. She reapplies her lipstick. So help me God under the pains and penalties of perjury. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. Um, there was that great Netflix documentary about Gloria that just came out. Oh, really? Oh, because I watched it and I thought, I have to know more about this mother-daughter duo. And then I also know, need to know more about her suits and everything. So. <laughs> um, okay, so next we have Alexandra Krzwicka. You can correct me when you get up here. Yeah. She's a second year in nonfiction, and fun fact, she has never broken a bone, but her left leg ended up in a cast after she scored a goal while playing soccer in Poland. Please give a warm welcome to Alexandra. Um, I'm a little nervous, uh, but I will do my best. I'm going to be reading from a piece um, that is not nonfiction today. It is uh, my attempt at science fiction. Um, and uh, here I go, here I go. The sunset burned the sky orange and gold and the pale silver sand spilled over my perfectly molded feet. Sinking in, my feet should have felt the grind of the grainy cold surface of days. Instead, it felt empty, just like the beach itself. For years, I had watched Deus change, transform, become viable from space. Today was the first day. I was the first to experience a new world. That tug of gravity, just a shade stronger than Earth's. A calculable feeling that was supported by the blinking figures in the corner of my vision. The wind whipped the waves into shards of pointed foam. Blue-gray hills stood in the far distance on the other side of the lake like an invitation. Wish you were here. I veered away from memories of old earth words and watched my charcoal feet sink, the sand giving in, silver covering my skin, the sun reflecting in the grains as I moved forward, walking toward the dunes a few hundred yards ahead. Salty wind pressed against my face and I inhaled. It smelled of ocean, fish, and kelp. I half expected to see skeletons rising from the waves, but not here. This lake had evolved specimens, one of the few creatures able to withstand the changes. The crocodiles had become the incumbent size of killer whales, but retained their thick hide and predatory ways. They tasted great barbecued, a great source of protein. Yet the idea of a creek eel catching me unawares at the edge of the water kept me at a distance, appreciating the view but not touching. I stopped. Of all the words to choose, that one, touching, just that one made my insides freeze. For even if I tensed my whole body, I would not feel it. Like a computer virus trapped and segregated from clean files, that word should not have slipped through my language filters, filters that should have deleted that word from my memories, from my knowledge, from my experience. The old ache returned at the base of my skull, a phantom pain, a reminder of a past faded, a memory of naturally curly hair, a springy halo, and cat eyes, a modification that had allowed her to see in the dark and into my being. Laughing to myself, I wondered, a creakle could survive change. Why not a human or a planet? There was no vegetation here, not at this desert beach. But just there, off to the side, a pebble hid snug, half covered by glinting sand, yet recently unearthed by wind. Bent in half, the sound of grinding and wearing my legs, calculating my balance. I grabbed the pebble with three fingers and raised it close to my face, my eyes measuring, adjusting, recording, standard explorer gear. And it smelled like ocean. My mind wandered to that last moment on old earth, in the ocean room, 
with the sound of crashing waves in the background as unknown forgotten surfers skidded across the water. There had been sand at our feet as well. My feet had been new then. The only memory I held onto from my past at Rose now replayed in my mind the pebble a key that had unlocked it. Her face half scarred from the explosion, one of her eyes seared shut by an ugly red scar. Like me, she had lost limbs, but unlike me, she refused the upgrades. And I remembered slapping her hand away as she reached for me. Wish you could feel. The memory froze and my eyes refocused on the pebble, black in color with a golden ring through it like an alien eye gazing through its smooth, polished ebony surface. Unconsciously, my finger stroked it. The word smooth shouldn't have made it through the filters either. It wasn't something I could feel. It was the only word I could use. There. The tears, the anger. The well I had stuffed full of the past overflowed and I flung the stone into the lake, wanting to watch it skip and plop into the darkness, into the deep like my memory. Forgotten forever and never to be discovered by any human. A mild disturbance to the creatures below. Instead of falling in, it skidded and then flew up like a bird that this world had yet to see. A mystery that, as Deus had gravity that kept my feet firmly planted on the ground. But at least the clouds traversed the sky in pastel pink and blue hues, something familiar yet off, just like the waves. The sound of them almost as good as the sound machine I fell asleep to every night. Wish you were here. Did I have a right to miss her? To wish she had stayed, even when I could not feel her touch or what it felt like to touch her? Did I have a right to wish it when I had slapped her hand away? My foot shot out, kicking the sand toward the lake, and that spray of silver fragments came back into my eyes, nose, and mouth. I could taste it, but not feel it. I knew it was in my eyes, and if I did not wash it out, it, it would scrape at my eyeballs, aggravate them, and possibly blind me. It would mean another operation. <clears throat> Time wasted. From the canteen at my belt, I poured water into my eyes and then the moisturizing drops. I washed the sand land on my hands and wiped it off on my suit, not feeling that or the tears streaking my cheeks, though I knew they were there. Turning from the lake's peaked surface, I noticed a being distorting the dunes in the distance. The creature floated towards me, its front tentacles held a little before it, sensing the air as if not to bump into anything. The tentacles' tips danced back and forth, shifting a bit left and then right in a complicated rhythm. Was it speaking, or was it part of its ability to float several feet above ground? How did it survive the terraforming, or was it a mutation? And I could not help but wonder what it would feel like to touch the translucent fur covering its cloud-like body, or to feel its electric blue tentacles caress my cheek. Would it sting? Would it burn? Would I even feel it? Or would, it be, or would I be unconscious, dying in the silver sand beneath my feet? Do you want to know? It neared me and held out a tentacle, the tip pointed at my chest. Would it feel like being struck by lightning or having a heart attack? Do you want to see? The words should not have surprised me, but when the tentacle turned over what had appeared translucent had really been camouflage for the pebble hidden within the crook of its length. She would have loved to observe, to make contact, to learn from this being, but it had not been enough to overcome her prejudice. The cat's eyes had been her limit, a choice her parents had made to give her sight after she'd been born blind, a side effect of the radiation storms on Old Earth. I still could not see why she chose to stay on a dying world, but my curiosity won and I wanted to know how something that appeared to float like a ghost to live a see-through existence could hold a pebble in its figurative hand. Do you want to feel? The tentacle skipped before me and I held out my hand for the pebble. It dropped into it, warm, smooth, infused with the energy of the being before me. The golden iris trapped in ebony stone glistened, winked at me in the fading sunlight. Wish you were here.
Thank you, Alexandra. Um, up next is Carly Bessel. She's a first year in poetry. And a fun fact about her is that she recently started watching um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and it is living up to the hype. It's a, it's a very good show. <laughs> um, this poem is called Ode to the Lungs. It's after E.E. Um, e. Cummings. Here's to gatekeepers of breath, to seers of inside and outside the body who feed the heart, to the exhale, diaphragm falling, bird caught in updraft. Once I saw a set of you in a glass case and I was afraid. In my chest, I felt you shaking. There you were outside, encased, and I could not fathom that unliving twist of limbs, of lobes. Here's to gasp and clavicles spread, your skill by which my blood is made clean. You dedicated alchemists, you who are fed from a world you will never see. So I've been trying to write odes to different body parts, and it's, it's like, it's really difficult. Um, and some of them end up not being odes at all. Um, this next one is called the philtrum, and it's to, the philtrum is like this little space in between, it goes right here, yeah. Okay, so this is called the philtrum. Are you vestigial? Expected split between right and left and lip, little key, when wound, the fetal face ties its three parts together here, softest skin stitched into valley. Shadowed by useful features, sockets, muscles that swell and twitch, you observer, you gentle divot. It's like God took a little spoon, my friend says, rubbing the tip of her pinky into the nook. God's little bed as if God would need to linger, as if there is a good place to rest within the made thing. And the friend in that poem is, is back there, it's Kate. Hi, Kate. Thanks. <laughs> um, this one is called Elegy with Bones. My grandmother painted birds in bright watercolors. A dozen scarlet ibises wading in shallow water, the green reeds and their wings folded or spread. She started painting after my grandfather died, and I imagine it was the feathers that drew her in, the comparative ease of flight. She watched the sparrows swing past windows, the hummingbirds sip nectar without landing, the geese in their high Vs, their jarring voices reaching all the way to the ground. She died as slowly as she wanted, it seemed. Eight days after she stopped eating, six days after she last took water. Before, she broke her ribs and sternum, just rolling over. When nurses still wanted her, arms lifted to get dressed. My grandmother's children moved her to hospice where a thin tube fed her nose oxygen and her skin was invaded by bruises. 
us grandchildren were called, and we clutched anxious hushes outside the room. Inside was an antiseptic wrongness none of us wanted to hear. Her lips quivering in their slack skin and the jarring hammer of her breathing. In the end, no one knew how many broken bones she had. If the bruises came from inside or went in through the outside. Only that she would never walk again, would never lift a hand to paint, could only wonder, maybe in her dying, at the hollowness of flight. When she opened her eyes and moved side to side her head, no one knew how much she heard or what she wanted to say. And this last poem is more of a celebration. It's called Chopping Wood. This, yeah, this is the last poem that I'll read for you. Chopping Wood. A crowd of tiny mosquitoes rise like steam from vines swishing around my feet. And the light here has that certain quality that makes the setting of fairy tales. Kids laugh from somewhere, their high, other-dimensional voices cut through the solitude of this tamed wood behind the house. There are a dozen trees split into thick logs, scattered haphazard through the green. Some fallen where they were hurriedly stacked, some lay where they first fell, looking like the vertebrae of a giant beast. My muscles were made for this slide of handle against palm. The setting of hips and the easy bend of knees, the heart, an efficient machine in its box. Watch. There is a moment. Axe hovers overhead, praying for the supple grain that will swallow the whole length of its edge. When fire is only a vague thought in the sharpness of the blade. Nothing breathes. The world suspended. Even mosquitoes hover, scent of my blood forgotten. The bark centipede hesitates in the fragile nook of a log. This prayer of metal and muscle and future flame. Half a century of growth split open all afternoon. An hour before dusk, in a premonition of fire, the forest glows gold. Thank you. Thank you, Carly. I'll never look at a philtrum the same again. Um, uh, our next reader is going to be Carissa Atala. She is a first year in playwriting, but she'll be reading some prose for us tonight. Uh, fun fact, Carissa is a Gilman International Scholar, recently returned from England, Argentina, and Chile. Her studies abroad have inspired her current writing project, a travel narrative about travel narratives. Please give a warm welcome to Carissa. Hello, everybody. Um, so as Chloe mentioned, this is a segment of prose from my novel. Um, this segment features a character named Kale, who is a professional Instagram blogger and self-proclaimed travel muse. Uh, it's set in Thailand. Kale flicked her eyes back and forth, from her iPhone set to portrait mode, to the Samlor set by the side of the road. 
On screen, the scene's composition was ideal. The candy-colored carriage crisp in the foreground, with streets stretching diagonally into brightness just behind. But the Samler driver stood center frame. He crossed his arms, he held his ground, he even frowned at the camera, totally ruining Kale's otherwise bitchin' shot. Kale sighed and tucked her phone into her bra. Her mother Debbie used to say that the wiring in bras can cause cancer. Debbie also used to say that the radio frequency in cell phones can cause cancer. Debbie would often insist as she sucked her seventh or eighth cigarette into extinction that a lot of things not only can, but certainly will cause cancer. Antiperspirants, the sun, pharmaceutical drugs, and microwave popcorn, to name a few. Kale might have lingered there longer, contemplating mothers and cancers and other unpleasant things, if not for the two women suddenly ascending the steps of a nearby hotel. These women were older, but not yet old. They wore wide smiles beneath even wider REI sun hats. They took one look at Kale, at her Santa Cruz t-shirt cropped at the navel, at her ripped denim shorts, and decided, by virtue of mutual Americanness, to invite her to split the fare traveling out of town. Kale saw no reason not to agree. Soon the women were flapping their arms at the driver, as though they thought he were many miles away rather than just a few feet. The Samlor driver dragged his eyes across the trio of foreigners, then shook his head. Only two, he said. Only two person fit. Nonsense, said one woman, adjusting her huge pointy glasses on her huge pointy nose. We're going in the same direction, and look-see, we can manage. To prove her point, the woman insisted they squish into the carriage. Kale hesitated, but pretty much as always, followed suit. These other women were not large, just thin and bony, like hungry Italian greyhounds. They managed to fit, albeit with sh shoulders rubbing and elbows jabbed into nearby rib cages. Beaten, the local man huffed, accepted their payment, and got on the bike. The one woman, the pointier of the two, unfolded a fan. Kale imagined she likely haggled at the local marketplace, perhaps saving an ugly penny through several sessions of language-barriered but nonetheless rigorous negotiations. Anyway, the fan was black, with oriental-looking green and white flowers hand-painted across its surface. Humid, isn't it? She touted. That's counterproductive, you know. You use up more calories waving the darn thing around all day, said her companion. So you're telling me I'm cooling off and cutting calories? Sounds good to me. They laughed, throwing their heads back with momentum. Kale drew her knees closer to her chest. It was hot. The driver in front of them already had sweat puddling between his shoulder blades, sticking to the weathered cotton of his collared shirt. He wouldn't believe the humidity in Havana last April. Oh, that's right, you took Daryl. Well, we were in Florida for the wedding anyway. We couldn't not go. Their voices were loud, masking the heavy huffing from the driver as he pedaled. Kel looked at the women, clearly well off in their adventure brand wear, clearly on their way to some exotic hike, accessible only by guided tour, donkey, or zipline. Kale avoided looking directly at the man. 
Instead, she stared down at the twenty brown bulge of his calves as they propelled the vehicle forward. It's like a time capsule there, the pointy one was saying. Like they're absolutely stuck in the past. Oh, how romantic, said the other. You need to put Cuba on your list. One sec. Sir? Sir? This is so great, but um, could you possibly go any faster? We'd hate to miss our tour, thanks. But yeah, certainly go sooner rather than later, before tourism ruins it for everyone. Where are you headed to, hun? Kale looked up. To the zoo? From the flyer? She unfolded a glossy pamphlet featuring monkeys, elephants, and exotic birds perched on the shoulders of smiling white children. Freaking cute, right? Oh my god, said the woman. I'm not too sure about places like this. Their carriage hit a hard bump in the road, and the duo paused to glare bullets in the driver's direction. Be a little careful, please, sir. I've got issues with my back. The driver grunted an affirmation, and the women turned back to Kale. These places can be absolutely cruel, said the one. The wild animals are probably all drugged, said the other. It's inhumane. Do they have elephant rides? That's the worst of it, elephant rides. Could you imagine majestic, sentient creatures forced to haul around tourists all day? I just can't. Animal cruelty, that's where I draw the line. Sorry, but Jesus, could this guy go any faster? Let's hop out here, Peggy. I'll pay for the cab. Thank you. Thank you, Carissa. Um, so last, the, our last reader is um, Kate Burns. She's a third year in fiction. Fun fact, she plays bass in a feminist comedy band called the Magic Wanda's Night. Hi, guys. Okay, so I brought you both an explicit non-procreative sex scene uh, and also a scene that's kind of about mothers. And I think I'm going to read the mother's one just so that we um, don't end with a whimper. Uh, this is from a novel in progress. Uh, it is set in 70s Hollywood with a uh, girl Friday who works for an established private eye as a protagonist, um, she has been on set undercover as an actress. Uh, she is currently at a diner with one of the actors, and her mother was brutally murdered by her father when she was a small child. <laughs> so, the waitress stops by the table to refill the coffee I'd ordered, rather than another beer. I was still smarting for my stupid mistake. Usually when I went undercover, it was transactional, an errand where I kept a backstory in my pocket just in case I needed it. Nobody had ever asked me too many questions. But usually, if I'm undercover, I never relax. She pours from high up, smooth and practiced like the pro she is, and I watch out of the corner of my eye, not looking up at her until the cup overflows. Hey, I say it's full. Oh, says the waitress, tilting the pot up and splashing coffee into the saucer and on the table. I look up at her. She's in her 50s, thin, robin-chested, with a face like a front porch that should have been torn down, but instead had just gotten a fresh coat of paint. She'd been pretty once. Now she's embarrassed, reaching into her apron for a rag to mop up the coffee. She looks up at me, startled and apologetic. I'm sorry, she says with a smoker's rasp. It's just, you look like someone I knew a long time ago. I want her to walk away. 
Don't worry about it, I say, and turn back to Gabe. He's watching us both, curious. I don't look back at her. I feel her eyes on me, though, not getting the hint. Rosemary Singer, she says. Doesn't anybody ever tell you that? I feel my throat constrict. No, I manage. But there's a first time for everything. She's still clumsily sliping at the coffee. It's okay, I say pointedly. Leave it. She does, but not before another long beat of appraisal. I feel her cataloging, filing me away to compare the pictures of my mother in her mind. In the old movie magazines, even, because I'm sure she didn't know her any more than I know Jackie O. It's just that fame makes you communal property. I feel the tightness in my throat creeping up behind my eyes, and I grab the coffee, spilling more and scalding my mouth as I swallow the feeling away. Gabe's watching me closely now. You do, you know. Yeah, I say, waving him off, making myself smile lightly as I wipe the coffee from my chin. I've heard it before. It's creepy. When I first moved out here, I lived in a house a few blocks away from where she was killed. I didn't know it when I moved in, but one of the guys I lived with is, like, obsessed. Oh, wow, I say. I don't want to hear any of it. I look at my watch. It's so late. I've got to be up early for an audition. Thanks for this. And before he can protest, I'm out of the booth and halfway across the restaurant. Bye, he yells after me, confused. See you Saturday. Uh, She goes home. There's a a possum. Uh... Sometimes I wonder what my life would be like if she had lived. These are mostly childhood fantasies, not something I indulge in much now. But tonight, I feel like if I look out the window, she'll be staring in at me, and that's far crazier than any of the other stories I used to tell. There was the version in which she left my father before he came to kill her, in which she'd changed the locks, and when he came pounding at the door that night, she'd looked at him through the window pane and given him a sad little smile. Or she put her palm up to the glass, an acknowledgement both of the love she had for him and its ultimate cosmic impossibility. He was unarmed in every version of events, uh, real or imagined. His service pistol was later found locked in the trunk of his car. But without the frying pan, that ill-fated weapon of opportunity, he could only smile sadly back. He might have punched the door. My mother might have flinched and closed her eyes, but that was it. In this version, my father still might have thrown himself off the half-constructed building. In this version, he would have died. There was also the version where my mother, who was to spend the following week shooting a movie in Santa Clarita, had taken me and driven up early for an outdoor getaway. We would have packed up the car with sweaters and picnic provisions and spent those days going on nature walks in shady glens with burbling brooks, the nights roasting marshmallows over a crackling hearth. My father, miles away, could still have burned the house down, but it wouldn't have touched us. I know now that there's no such place in Santa Clarita, which is red and barren as another planet, but the fairy tale, that could have been, remained. There was another version of this fantasy, too, one that was less rational, more dependent on events that I knew took place. In this version, although she had been attacked, mutilated, left for dead, against all odds my mother had survived. She had been wounded so severely that he thought she was dead. But the neighbor had called the police sooner, the paramedics had arrived more quickly, and the doctors at Hollywood Presbyterian had saved her life. For her safety and for mine, the police had let everyone believe that she had died. And while I was whisked off to Rialto and my father was booked, neither of us with any hope of bail, the surgeons went to work reconstructing her face. By the time they were done with her, she was a different woman. It might have been that her memory was destroyed, or it might have been that she'd stayed away from my protection, believing that it was safer for both of us if she did not show me her new face, if she did not subject me to any more of the scrutiny or danger that came with being her daughter. But in this fantasy, she couldn't stay away forever. She would eventually return to me, unrecognizable but more precious for it, and take me away from the phantom life I had been living. We would start a new life together, somewhere neither of us had ever been. North Dakota, New Orleans, Colorado, maybe. Someplace green. 
The summer after my father was executed, every car that turned down my grandparents' hot, dusty street might have been driven by my mother. I was 13, old enough to know that this was impossible, compulsive, but I couldn't stop from checking out every driver to see if maybe she could be in there, disguised, returned to me finally from her unwilling abdication. What I'm saying is that I'm used to looking for my mother in other people, but it still unnerves me when other people find her in me. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Kate. All my favorite things, murder, the 70s, complicated mother-daughter relationships. Uh, thank you, readers, again, for reading for us. And thank you, Skylight, for hosting. Um, you know, thank you. I hope you have a good rest of the night. <laughs>